thank you for calling the Balm Free Communist Manifesto Project. Please leave your name and full address after the beep. This offer is only good for folks in the Southern Illinois area and supplies are limited. Workers of all lands unite. You have one new message. <laughs> you can go fuck yourself, honestly. <laughs> Fucking idiots. <laughs> Locust Radio. Welcome to Locust Radio, episode 10, the more or less monthly podcast from Locust Review and the Locust Arts and Letters Collective. I am your host, Adam Turrell. And I am your host, Tish Turrell. Locust Radio is produced by Drew Franzblau and Alexander Billet. Locust Review 6, so you all know, is going to the printers on October 1st or 2nd thereabouts. You can subscribe to Locust Review at locustreview.com. The first half of Locust Radio is free to everyone, but the second half is only available to our subscribers. Subscribers, depending on their subscription level, in addition uh, to Locust Review, also get our theory annual, Imago, that was just printed in August, and early access to our audio play anthology series, Swarm Stories, produced by Drew Franzblau. We're really excited today to have as our guest uh, the poet Richard Hamilton, whose collection of poetry, Rest of Us, was just published by Recenter Press. Richard Hamilton was born in 1975 and grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey and Columbus, Georgia. As it says in the about the author portion of his book, rest of us examines the way race, class and gender intersect to expand our notion of personhood and people's responses to racism, human exploitation and violence. His poetry has appeared in a number of journals and he has received fellowships from the Chautauqua Writers Festival and the Vermont Studio Center. In 2020, he received the Oscar Williams and Gene Derwood Award. Richard Hamilton holds an MFA in poetry from the University of Alabama and an MA in arts and public policy from New York University. So we really want to discuss your work, and we do have some questions, but we thought it would be best to open up with a reading of your choice from Rest of Us and welcome you to the show. Thank you, Tish, and thank you, Adam, and thank you, Drew, uh, for having me, for inviting me to your show. And I'm very excited and maybe a tad nervous um, just from a time uh, constraint point of view, <laughs> because I know that that's time is of the essence. But um, so thank you for having me. And I wanted to open with uh, four poems, if there's time. Um, the uh, Alabama Inmate Notes uh, in four, Black and White and Revolting Shadows. Um, if you don't mind, the way I like to do it is offer some surround uh, and then read the poems you know, uh, if that's okay. That sounds great. Okay, great. Okay, thank you. Um, <clears throat> okay, so Alabama Inmate Notes is a prose poem informed by prison culture, life behind bars, disregard for prisoner welfare, worker demands, race and sexuality, and is rendered in a dreamlike sequence, enlisting surrealism as a mode of operation to transcend binaries and reductionist bourgeois speech. There is no punctuation in the poem as, as uh, the concerned, dare I say, lamentations um, are meant to stack up and assault, um, but also deliver the feeling of life in a dank, dark, cramped environment like that of a slave hole or prison compound with little to no ventilation, ripe for the spread of infectious disease and hidden from public view 
where a host of violations ensue. So this against the backdrop of a speaker who holds the demands and grievances of his comrades in tandem, speaking out against routine atrocities, doing so um, as uh, I would say like as a legitimate complaint and sacred invocation, right? It takes the form of an anti-colonial statement, poetry of witness to expose violence and to reclaim one's humanity in the face of tyranny. I wrote the poem while working as a teacher in the Alabama Prison Arts and Education Project um, at St. Clair Correctional Facility in North Alabama. Um, so here is Alabama inmate notes for Moses. The job is taxing, clanking on the bars, we all agree. We need some new work boots, and yet, and moreover, we need a new outlook, sir. It, it is 100 degrees in here, and the air is obscene, as well as our knees hurt, where our heavenly body speaks to us, and nothing, sir, to scratch our dreams on the wall with. And there, sir, is another rape. Another fucking suicide goes underreported, and guards scream, bust your head if you buck. And some of us live, sir, in block San Francisco, where the smells are all kind, brown and blue musk, that in our dreams fuses railroad, a chain of events, sir, that lead here and suppose us dead and deserving, we all agree. We have families, we hurt in real life, we step out of line, we talk shit, eat watermelon on Independence Day, as well as find our handcuffs, bird calls, women, or booze until the sun goes down our feet. Bar after bar, sir, as the clanking renews itself, as we take lint from the laundry room to cop with us, we all agree. As we ink, we blot out, we meld, we murder, we assemble for chow, with each clanking bar our heavenly body speaks of. So the second piece um, that I wanted to read is entitled In Four, and it explores the sense of being, um, how should I say this, antagonized, maybe even terrorized by the police um, against the backdrop, which is the actual police, but also the grammarian, right? So the omnipotent speech cop, the enforcers of patriarchal poetry uh, to enlist Gertrude Stein's help, who um, uh, in, a, in, a, in essence, favor linear speech patterns, you know, who frown upon pigeon and who clown broken English, who marginalize street vernacular. The absurdity of the chase in the poem in four naturally requires um, an ever absurdist response to outpace one's predator and to reclaim a new language to describe the chaos. In four. Wallowed in oiled lyrics. Chain hand washed over my bomb and wicker, burning subduct, plate ring, tree fire, moon, drone, liar, sings, motherless child, cycles compressed, spokes turn into low flicker notes, tickle throat, cold chest, the more air consumes, in all likelihood, strange fruit, possible insect bite swell, petal crew crossing faster, comma, the street uphill, we travel in roads, 
Plausible voice email, period. No possible crush. Whistle, you D, you hey, you motion of cop car, engine fan, working overtime cough, a tax fire bomb, little children spared, tires burnt, tonal shift, my heart coddles, please. Release metronome like space, hip hop beats and vibe in the bass, empty feeling I get lost in my country time, cuckoo hammer, smell of corkscrew before you know it. Feet, pestle, sound into social tea, white lies singing the. Let me ask, uh, so that's, that's in four. Do I have time for another two or how are we doing on time? You have time, okay. for sure. Okay, um, so again, we're offering just a little surround um, and I realized that that's what some people go for. Some people don't like to, the poems to be explained away and other people appreciate the context for the poem. So, I mean, I, I didn't, didn't know how to really do this except to offer um, some, um, some historical context. So, all right. So one of the salient features of slave narratives is the push to debunk, um, how, how would I say this, eugenicist myths, you know, about black inferiority to do so by pinning very gruesome, you know, tales of individual and collective capture, enslavement and eventual freedom. Um, the idea in many ways uh, was to demonstrate, you know, learned articulation to quote unquote earn, as it were, their humanity to impress the planter class. Um, so my work, uh, you know, while engaged in the art of formal writing, there being a number of traditional form poems and rest of us, my concerns are tied up with the afterlife of slavery. The fact that workers are still exploited, black bodies, uh, black publics, black communities are still infantilized, managed and controlled, yoked through unjust criminal measures and murdered. No degree of articulation or respectability has saved us from that terror. I don't mean to suggest that slave narratives were not useful. From a legal standpoint, there were historical records marshaled in service of helping slaves gain their manumission. You know, they were works of art even, right? Um, as records, they stirred disobedience and revolt in slaves who uh, could be chastised for learning how to read, for example. One of my goals and rest of us is to shore up that complication. So, um, Citizenship and the concept of citizenship was conferred on us in 1791, right? And this is the, with the creation of the U.S. Constitution. Then again in 1863 under Abraham Lincoln's Declaration Proclamation. Part of my concern in a poem like Black and White um, is to complicate this notion of freedom when citizenship, as we know, was only second-class citizenship at best, right? Considering Black people, three-fifth uh, human beings, uh, so that granting freedom to the enslaved without economic compensation for land theft, for psychological impact and human casualties is more burden than momentous win, right? So even indemnity laws gave planters the right to seek compensation for human property loss during and after uh, the German coast uprising of 1811 in Louisiana. Not only that, but you know, eugenicist lies are never addressed so that while our freedoms are being conferred, uh, the government actually revs up the engine of racist mythologizing, bolstering a racist imagination, ensuring that uh, there would always be a sort of uh, tacitly understood 
permanent class of non-citizens, right? So this is the context for which I wrote the poems, uh, Black and White, in uh, a, a lesser degree, Revolting Shadows. So I will read those two poems for you. Black and White, Ode to the Haitian Revolution, 1791. A great leap forward for humankind, I am wearing the blues Jefferson helped ratify a constitution. The cherry beat of civil forfeitures, if ever there was a tree, we hung from it. Tinsel and tally the rage felt in Saint-Domingue, Virginia, Bahia, and Cuba, New Orleans. A chorus of the enslaved screamed like the ferocious heart of Ferguson, freedmen wet with blood from rubber, bullets, and bleeding eyes. We anticipate the Ballad of Birmingham proper, so lovely a protest song, it reverberates the gravel, hot sound of boiling cane sugar eating her skull, a cramped palimpsest carved with a dank hull of slave ships carrying dandelion and devil's claw, the future of four ghosted black girls holding precious demands. The weight of imposition is the burden of citizenship bent, uh, penned in black and white without a plebiscite, Shoo, shoo the nigger flies from our heads, smeared in sugar, bodies buried deep in the soil. And then the final poem that I'll read um, is Revolting Shadows. This was written with this pretty much within the same context um, as Black and White. The truth is, was there ever a time my hands did not quiver? If circa 1791 means anything to you at all, and I am a slave husband, cowering before an invisible pail of water used to douse my burning limbs, pleading with master, awash in the consternation of you, my dear wife. Would you rather I take my life in death than suffer such indignity? Do not listen to stretchy grass where it hides the remains of slave children. Do not covet salt or mercy, for it cannot purify the darkening soil of enlightenment. Poor water does what it will and evaporates. I say to you, pity not the burdock and black-eyed seasons, for every colonial footprint disparages human seeds. Artifice in favor of property and paper money. Do not forget that you belong to the first black republic, gold reserves and crude misshapen diamonds. Advise you to pay my love for you, offer my body a supplication, a house of fire, ants, white laughing goats, and severed limbs. Will I be forgiven? My insurgent nature, whose due north is but rubber quotas to European settlers, who dismember Africans darken under a relentless sun, promises to make room for erstwhile shadows. So, thank you for allowing that intro no yeah thank you that that was you read some of uh well some of my favorite pieces and, and lines um from your book <clears throat> and, and, and it, i think it, it goes into the first question i wanted to bring up really well a few of the things you said as you were like uh uh, uh discussing the the poems really struck with me uh one an increasing i think this is, i think i got it right an increasingly absurdist approach to outpace um and the question of the afterlife of slavery the persistence of exploitation the persistence of colonial and antebellum racism in partially new new clothing and i know the question of exposition is, is about 
the work is always difficult. And I go back and forth between a desire for like, or an impulse toward like radical honesty about where things come from and a desire to let the work speak with people uh, where they are. But one of the things that really struck us about your book, aside from the work itself, uh, was the statement you included at the beginning of Rest of Us and how you approached the question of history and time, that time and its associated signs and so on happen in the form, shape, and sound, as you say, of the slave narratives and art practice of Black writers at the turn of the 18th century to the present. Uh, so in terms of the meaning of the form of things, in terms of the content, the echoing, as you say in your statement of the Haitian Revolution over time, the echoes of queer rebellion over time. And one of the things we've talked about a lot at Locust Review and many of the uh, realist artists have talked about, in particular, uh, black realists like Afrofuturists and Afro-surrealists is remixing time, you know, and rejecting that idea of linear progress or teleological progress. And I was wondering if you could unpack a little bit about that in terms of how you approach uh, uh, your work. Yeah, I, I can. Um, yeah, exposition is really hard. You know, it's really hard to talk about. Um, except I really like how you invited me to um, do so in terms of the Afro-Surrealists and Surrealist traditions, because those are um, heavy influences, right, um, uh, in the making of this book. So the short answer is yes, I am remixing time. I am. Um, the work uh, is interested in collapsing rigid boundaries in favor, you know, of something more capacious, more strange. But also it wants to say that, you know, capitalism breeds despair and bouts of resignation and even hopelessness, right? Like that's real. It stirs nihilism and addiction as coping strategies. Those are crucial emotive planes that almost always, in my opinion, preclude protest, self-love and collective action. So I want to talk about those things in the book, right? I want to explore those concerns. Um, playwright Adrian Kennedy once said, you know, what makes surrealism so appealing to many Black writers was being able to find um, you know, the language to experience and express the absurdity of being Black, right? So race, as we know, is a political and social construction, you know, meant to sow division. Race-based hierarchies feed U.S. imperialism and stoke the flames of state violence. The fact that by the end of the Reconstruction period, one's freedom and leisure was reinscribed as criminal, right, um, under new vagrancy laws meant to coerce us into topic uh, leasing contracts and, and sharecropping is absurd, right? Black genocide is absurd. The fact that being Black then and now often means hiding one's rage. Um, and disdain for overt and even covert acts of racism, right? To make nice, you know, to protect and provide for one's family is absurd, right? The afterlife of slavery, whole penal colony, right? Where a disproportionate number of black men and women languish in prisons for nonviolent offenses is absurd. So in that sense, my work is revolutionary in the Afro-Surrealist tradition as it draws on, um, I would say the discontent of the masses, worker-led resistance to the petty bourgeoisie and callous governments. Um, it does so without decentering the emotional landscape of the subject, which I think is inherently political. So, you know, also my work, you know, I would say borrows from theory set forth in the negative movement. Um, I did have to kind of brush up on the negative movement before the show <laughs> because I hadn't, 
looked at it closely since graduate school. Um, but negritude is a concept that originates as a response to French colonialism and racism, right? It, you know, it's tied to um, three black students in the 1920s, Amé Césaire, Leopold Senghor, and Léon Gontran, um, each born into French colonies. Senghor sees the project of enlightenment as the development of uh, racial difference, right? As the concept that Europeans and white settler colonists are superior to, dark, to darker races throughout the global South and the West. Senghor sets out to debunk that myth, right? Um, and recover uh, the history of Africa's accomplishments. Césaire, on the other hand, um, only differed in his position that the movement should not romanticize uh, primitivism or the return to origin stories, but instead carve out new space for African and diasporic expression that is future-oriented and modern. Uh, to do so, to reconstruct the idea of utopia and nostalgia for the past world, according to Césaire, would lead to a kind of exoticism or othering for which Césaire despised, right? Uh, instead, he insisted that the best of negritude embodied a radical vision for universal freedom among the colonized and workers worldwide. Of course, uh, Martinique, uh, his uh, upbringing in the Caribbean would always uh, remain the soup he laid from for his anti-colonial musings. But yeah, so I would say that my, my writing is, is definitely, and, and this reference to it being um, nonlinear, right, is in step with the traditions, the surrealist traditions, the Afro-surrealist traditions, and even um, jazz improvisation. A jazz era improvisation you know yeah one of the things adam and i do and a lot of the artists and writers do at locust review is respond to writing with visual art and respond to visual art with writing i noticed that in rest of us you respond to the digital collage art of ronald williams and his piece wild thing and your poem wild thing an ode to serena williams in postpartum catsuit and his collage the champ and your poem white bowl with broken chains for John Arthur Jack Johnson about the early 20th century black heavyweight champ uh, Jack Johnson, who some folks might know from the 2004 documentary Unforgivable Blackness. And I believe there are some other works you respond to. Can you talk about the relationship of visual art to your poetry? Yeah, uh, so Tish mentioned um, the collaboration that I did in the book with um, Ronald Williams. So for those of you who don't know, for the listening audience, I collaborated with visual artist Ronald Williams. He's based in Barbados, whose digital uh, artworks examine, among other things, what it means to live uh, in the wake of Black genocide, right? With the interior wars, I think W.E.B. Du Bois speaks of when he refers to the psychological impact of the color line on race subjects, right? So Ronald created a series of images of Black athletes. Um, whose media depictions, one could argue, are indicative of the ways Blackness is celebrated, policed, uh, and penalized uh, in popular culture, right? This infatuation with, uh, with an, you know, low for Black bodies, Black strength, and superhuman resilience is one outcome, I would say, of colonialism, right? These are the racist, uh, eugenicist ideals I refer to that Black people, especially Black athletes, are supposed to have an endless supply of. Some of the earliest daguerreotype uh, photographs of Black Americans were taken by Europeans who sought to 
uh, exaggerate features to further claims about black inferiority, um, hypersexual nature, barbarity, et cetera. So subjects would deadpan the camera, right? We're not allowed to display the gamut of human emotion. So, you know, imagine having to conceal that the rage and the discontent one feels for white supremacy, right? For the racist media handling of one's personal image and predicament, right? Imagine that, right? Now imagine how incensed were media agents and law enforcement at the sight of famed boxer, John Arthur Jack Johnson, who was every bit the dandy, right? Impeccably, impeccably dressed in most all his uh, uh, media visuals, right? With a bejeweled white woman on his arm when miscegenation laws prohibited interracial mingling, right? He wasn't supposed to be doing that. Jack Johnson was an emblem and complicated champion for Black and non-white people alike during that era. So Tish mentioned Serena Williams. I also have a piece in the in Rest of Us entitled um, Wild Thing, after an artwork by uh, Ronald. Uh, Serena, in her legitimate fits of rage and anger on the tennis court and the policing of her actions is clearly not about her and more about this culture's obsession with naming and controlling the images of powerhouse figures, especially women, right? Um, I, I don't, I believe it was Nell Irvin Painter, the historian who said, you know, black women were in the 18th century depicted as lascivious subjects, right? As hypersexual subjects that welcome the sexual advances of white male settlers, right? Um, but in Serena's case, uh, in 2018 at the US Open, Serena was fined $17,000 for a heated exchange with an umpire in which she called the umpire's ruling sexist, right? Um, Capitalism needs polite, you might disagree, but I think capitalism needs uh, polite, quiet, winning role models that don't challenge authority, right? But rather work in service of US, US empire. Sports, we all might agree, is largely a nationalist project. Serena represents America. So how dare she forget her place, right? How dare she have unscrupulous bouts of uh, disdain for her own uh, mistreatment? Right. Of course, she handled the aftermath with grace and poise, stating in no uncertain terms, you know, that the disciplining demonstrated gender bias and double standards. She made clear that tennis players are that male tennis players are not held to the same standards as women. Okay. Um, so I mean to really uh, say flesh out, right? Um, some of this um, in my. Um, pairing poems with uh, visuals. That makes sense. Um, do we have do we have time, Tish? I, I think we have time. Oh, I'm not yeah. sure for what. <laughs> I was I was looking at you. I was, I'm looking at you and I'm like, is Tish telling me to to wrap it up? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. That, that was great. Tell, you know, okay, so I'm trying, I'm trying to pay attention to make sure that I'm not you know, going on and on. So um, something uh, that you said earlier, uh, uh, Richard, flows into another uh, question I had, where to paraphrase, you said something along the lines of the work being politically revolutionary without sacrificing the emotional aspect of the individual, which is also inherently um, political. Um, and you read Alabama Inmate Notes, Inmate Notes, which borrows uh, from uh, Federico Garcia Lorca's Sleepwalking Ballad, and you write... Sir, you, you read this earlier, sir, it is 100 degrees in here and the air is obscene. And I really like how you combine references 
one to other poetic gestures and historic artifacts and artworks um, with this astute focus on like the phenomenological reality, the subjective reality, the emotional reality of the, the people you're talking about, connecting that social totality to the individual without minimizing either. So in one stanza you write, a ready-made hand solves a metal plate through the park in my cell. The sound of a man with a black bag covering his face being led down the hallway to chamber music. And I really like the enjambments and line shifts, by the way, the irregular line breaks in mid-sentence, uh, creating at times like something like an arrhythmia and sometimes something like syncopation, which I think refers back to the, the reference you made earlier to jazz. And in the following stanza, variations from uh, Lorca, Throw Me a Rope, Quick Before Water, and Book. And you weaponize this in uh, powerful ways. In Black and White, Ode to the Haitian Revolution, 1791. And I read this in part as against the hagiography of Jefferson and the fetishizing of the U.S. Constitution. I guess I'm sort of asking even more after what I think is this sort of militant concern about the actual human beings that make up the social against as we talked about the flattening concepts of progress and so on. And I think of a line in your poem, Revolting Shadows, do not covet salt or mercy for it could not purify the darkening soil of enlightenment. Adam, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the questions. And, you know, just to pull out one thing you said is, yeah, I am trying to create new idioms. And um, I do appreciate you hearing the irregular um, uh, uh, rhyme and beat patterns in, in the poem, you know, I am distorting syntactic structures on purpose. Um, I love Garcia's work. Um, the best way to talk about the melding of the social to the subjective is to say really that I'm interested in the poetics of kind of relation and dialectics. You know, dialectical poetry, unlike the, you know, some of the warring camps we are handed on a platter, experimental, innovative, the too long or too short traditions, for example, is interested in tension, right? In staging contradictions and pursuing all possibilities, right? I think it was, uh, I wrote it down, the literary critic and Marxist Frederick Jameson who wrote that art's function is to produce uh, contradictions and make them visible. So dialectical poetry favors pluralism over monoculturalism and critiques from inside the enclave of late stage capitalism while um, simultaneously holding the idea, right? Holding the idea of an outside. Uh, the tension is the inescapable mirroring of capitalism structures, to borrow Jameson's metaphor, and at the same time, the smashing of that mirror, right? That militant concern you mentioned, I liken to those proposed by Césaire, and, and maybe in the work of Jane Cortez and uh, Vallejo and others, uh, for example, to martial surrealist techniques that are anchored by the concerns of the colonized and working class, right? Pushing toward and against, right, a communist horizon. Communist horizon is a, a great place to stop. Then go to the next question, I think. Uh, so, so I went back to school this fall to get my uh, my BFA in creative writing in SIU and my poetry professor, the brilliant poet, Alison Joseph, I, I mentioned to her that we'd be interviewing you and I asked for uh, a couple suggestions for questions. And she told me that I should ask you if there's any such thing as writer's block. One, I was unaware that there was a debate on this. So I'm really interested to hear your point of view on that one. And, and also, like, how do you how do you start writing a poem or to be less workshoppy about it? Like, what are you trying to do 
as you write? Like when you start a poem, like what, what are you trying to get to? Um, yeah, yeah. Allison, I like Allison and I like Allison's work. When you're under deadline, writer's block is real, right? I don't want to minimize the struggle for writers, you know, but, you know, it would also be disingenuous of me to gloss over the, the uh, inordinate amount of time spent oiling the wheels of like award culture, you know, a tiresome enterprise, you know, that see so many writers newly graduated from MFA program, dripping with student loan debt, myself included, here we go, right? Beholding to deadline after deadline, the way a track star is, you know, trained to clear hurdles, right? Poems are crafted, you know, in large part to fit the tenor of contests to impress judges, to accumulate cultural capital, right? It's a vicious and bad system that for many years I avoided. Uh, in fact, soon after I took an MFA degree in poetry from UA, um, the University of Alabama, I stopped publishing, right? The rejections, you know, the cost and fees, you know, life as um, an itinerant, you know, adjunct with a disability consumed me, right? Um, and, 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 and I would say right now it's kind of weird uh, watching so many people rush toward inclusion among a class of innovative poets, like experimentalism is like the latest craze. It's also one of the hottest commodities. As a, as a commodification, um, as commodification has it, um, there are markers or standards that constitute innovation, which you may or may not argue is gross. I think that's not a good thing. <laughs> you know, art making as a form of exploitation is something we should, you know, maybe talk about more. But um, to answer your question about um, how I start poems, especially when I'm feeling stuck, um, um, I would say by sampling other work um, um, of other poets, both living and deceased, you know, I might borrow news story headlines and remix things. You know, I might turn to uh, visual art for inspiration. Um, I watch and listen to broadcast news on C-SPAN, BBC Radio, NPR, Democracy. Now, I'm a real newshead, you know I mean? Because I think that is some of the most absurd of syndication you would ever listen to or watch, you know what I mean? Like, so much can come from listening to a newscast, you know, and there's so many varieties in it, right? Um, so um, that is, it's really naturally macabre. I read lots, especially history and cultural criticism. I like to play with and subvert traditional forms. I love Knox forms. Um, that is the best advice that I have because, um, you know, poetic forms like Villanelle, Sistinas, and Science, for example, are exercises in formal restraint that don't let one meander. And yet, meander you may if breaking uh, the form advances your mission, right? Um, and I do a lot of that. Well, not a lot of it, but I do some of that in the um, rest of us. Um, when I write less workshoppy poems, I'm after something like uh, proximity, something like uh, the relational. You know, I want the tensions I spoke of earlier to sing, right? I edit to develop a thesis, dizzying as that may sound, <laughs> right? I believe all poems for an argument, if only a nonsensical one on the surface. Um, so I try to rummage for signifiers, snick and tuck until the essence feels, you know, robust and dignified and electric, you know, to me. You know, I do my best. I try. Well, I mean, you're 
you're a really good poet like there's there's a strength to your to your stuff that uh it's it oftentimes it's like a really subtle punch to the gut that uh is something that your poetry makes me want to go write poetry if that yeah well can i add that your um some of your cultural criticism and your prose writing that i read online is phenomenal and that's the stuff that's the fire that's the soup that I ladle from, by the way. You know, I love reading stuff like that. You know what I mean? So keep writing it. Please, Tish and Adam. <laughs> Please. Well, thank you very much. Well, would, uh, would you be interested? I mean, we have some more stuff we want to talk about, but are you interested in maybe uh, reading another poem? Um, yes. So to answer, answer your question, Adam, I can, if you like. Do you want me um, do you uh, do you have any requests, or should I just read? I really uh, liked the palimpsest poem "Blackout." Did you, you already read that, though? Didn't you? No, you didn't. No, no, you didn't read that because um, I thought this really uh, really brought out the the thing about the the arrhythmia moving back and forth into syncopation. Um, but uh, so that's one of the ones I really really found interesting. Okay, so I, I'll read that. And if there's time, I may read one more. So this one is um, Palimpsest, Blackout. This, please know I hurt, I love. The contrary biggest weakness is that I care, capitalism, period. This letter, when I say conditions drive destitution, period. The greed, malice, par for austerity and victim blaming leaves all cold and calculated period. Enslaved legacy, racial form of routine penalty, greed, pleasures, human, period. We, Black market, survive, period. Eric Gardner, how father lose life, loose cigarettes, breathe, his family subject? How his die fighting exhume her father's Sandra Bland, Erica Garner, sites for erasures, strike and women, dare white, Homeless, this country say nothing of shadows. Who don't? Who judge? Lockdown, system records, addiction, never mind. Legislation, mirrors, fugitive rounding up. Black boys, black women, higher crimes, period. Never mind. How Donald Trump's travel ban, Muslim shithole countries, mirrors, Andrew Jackson's hysteria, Haitian immigrants, revolution, period. Never mind. How Donald Trump's plan cut subsidies. Reagan's handiwork, disappearing the social, most vulnerable mothers, children, trans men, and women, immigrants, elderly, disabled, chronically, sick and shut in, smells like it belongs, period. To racist agendas, how Reagan caricatures black women, welfare queens, late 80s, ridiculous, those living, dying, HIV, period, victims, blaming then as now, adverse color, pharmaceutical price out, Populist needed life saving drug treatment. I son, I fag, my pension being in the ass and bucking normative places among dissidents, socialists, drug users, period. I bitten tongue hoping to appease detractors, period. It do love you. Please let this the only examining Western psychology know. Thank you, period. Theories without account for historical surround. Drives misery. That, that was the idea of a palimpsest is 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 really important to me in how it 
like we've been talking about, connects like the idea of individual subjectivity and expression, the marks made by actual human beings with the social, the wider, and like marks by other human beings into something that can be seen a sort of layered but incomplete record of both time and people and again the poem has these breaks throughout with each line it's, you, could, you could hear when you were reading it almost like parts are missing creating at times as i mentioned before like that whole thing about arrhythmia moving back and forth to syncopation sort of like also like a, a backwards mad mad libs right or a, a mad libs that hasn't been filled out yet um, the second and fifth stanzas really hit me. There's almost like there's multiple voltas in the poem. Um, and for folks who don't know what a volta is, Tish and Richard Hamilton can correct me because they'll know better than me. Uh, volta is like the key conceptual narrative or visual or musical transition in a poem uh, from like one kind of uh, 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 place to another. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy you read that actually. <laughs> Sort of related to that, um, there's a, a concept that, you know, we've talked about at Locust Review and we didn't come up with it. Um, other socialists and Marxists did this idea of a differentiated totality the sort of that also hits on the key importance of both the individual subject and the multiple identities of, of exploited and oppressed subjects, as well as how that's connected to a political and social uh, whole, which, again, is something I've, I've seen running through your work. Um, and I, as I noted in the notes we shared before the call, I was thinking about, um, I think it's from 1963, the Amira Baraka poem, The Politics of Rich Painters. And they're in the second stanza, these lines, just as their fingers prints, staining the coal glass is sufficient for commerce and a proper ruling on humanity. Um, making fun of and poking fun of, uh, uh, of th this sort of thing. And it's not that he's arguing against the idea of unique expression, I think the fingerprints are showing how empty it is in isolation from a reckoning with with the social reality. And I, I also recalled how uh, Baraka fused um, the political and expressive in his description of the artwork of Emery Douglas as expressionist agitprop, a reconciliation of what had been artificially separated. And, and for uh, any listeners who don't know, um, Emory Douglas was the Minister of Culture and one of the key artists for the original uh, Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in its heyday and combined photo montages with other mechanical design elements with hand-drawn expressionistic images um, in this really, really unique way that also, like the palimpsest, I think begins to, to, to get at this um, dynamic of a, of a totality that's also made up of millions of unique people. Um, anyway. Yes, yes. To answer your question and to extend your comment, I agree. You know, and the only thing that I might add is that, you know, it's interesting to take what politicians do every day, which is lead by omission, and to use that to have that structure or frame your construction of a poem, you know, um, through silences and gaps and susurras, you know. So it's really, yeah, what you, everything you said just resonated. Thinking about, um, do you remember, like, when you were, you were mentioning something about, like, experimentation, but with sort of, like, no purpose, sort of, earlier, um, in terms of some, like, academic uh, poetry? I'm sure you remember that was the Kenneth Goldsmith conspiracy, uh, not conspiracy, but uh, controversy from a few years ago. Yes, I do. Refresh my memory, Sam. Uh, he was remixed, basically, Kenneth Goldsmith, he was the uh, 
poet laureate or whatever of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And he was, he made his career remixing found text, right? Um, but with not much sense in terms of the meaning of the found text, um, just remixing things, however he arbitrarily felt like doing. And he read a quote unquote poem that was a remixing of uh, 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 the, 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 my Brown autopsy um, from, this, from the, the, the murder of, of, in uh, Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and people were rightly, in my opinion, um, upset about this because his apolitical experimentation ended up being political um, and reflecting uh, what you could call the, you know, in the sense from the racist common sense um, um, of the of the broader United States. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it's obviously remixing and pivoting off of previous poets and texts is really important, but it doesn't mean that these things don't have social meaning, um, which I think was the approach that he was taking to them. Um, and it reminds me of, uh, you posted on like, you know, just uh, for friends on Facebook, wherever, uh, an article that I found interesting that was like, why poets should be socialists. And there were a number of interesting points, um, in that article, but one of the things was about self-publishing, um, and getting outside of sort of like, uh, the reinforcements of, uh, um, established discourse around poetry. And this has a long tradition particularly for artists who are concerned with both the political um, and the uh, expressive, right? You know, Raymond Pettibon, William Blake, early Raymond Pettibon, uh, Walt Whitman even, uh, Emery Douglas, you know, and of course collectors around surrealism and the Afro-surrealists and so on, to sort of talk about escaping the limits of, uh, of, of some of this stuff, some of the things that might discipline work in a direction that is less political and in some ways also less expressive um if that makes sense um yeah i would agree i would agree with that i would agree um the uh i call it the mfa industry you know because so much of our so much time um is spent conforming to you know maybe even tacitly conforming to a set of standards after we graduate from these programs you know what i mean um and uh Again, it does, it does um, I think, wrench the um, political uh, uh, from the work, right? It, so it, it, really does, and it, it really does water and weaken. It can. I mean, not always, right? Some people do the, the, the opposite after an MFA program, but yes. And as far as publishing goes, absolutely. I think everything you said, I agree with. I don't I don't personally understand this like aversion to to self-publishing that that uh, that seems to have like exploded. I guess there was like a big debate over this. I don't personally understand why there would be an aversion to (laughs) the point of being a writer isn't like uh, at least to me, obviously, I'm only speaking for myself, but like the point Mm of creating content is not to. to like make it but you're you're trying to create work to like give to the world right like why right. why would you impede yourself in any fashion um, right and you know i think it's um you know and the obvious reason is 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 what's at the center of it all is capital you know and it's this race for what um appears to be a scarce set of resources 
Um, and so, you know, capitalism, it really shapes pretty much everything we do. You know, it informs and it really exacts pressures on us. You know what I mean? And I'm not, I'm not um, justifying or I'm not coming to, um, I, don't, I don't support that kind of behavior, you know, either. But like I'm just saying that I'm, in my mind, I'm just trying to get at maybe what the people's reasonings are for conforming to those standards. Um, right. Why would you have an aversion to self-publishing? You know, and I think too of like this push, this uh, explosion in zine production and things like that, you know, alternative uh, modes of, pub of publishing are just, it's just phenomenal and it's great and I love it and I hope it continues, you know? Yeah, I think there's something similar about like uh, academic publishing because Basically, I went back to grad school so I could move back to my hometown and have health insurance and hopefully not be exposed to the pandemic. Like I, you know, um, and people, there was, we had to take a, a seminar about publishing things um, in the academic press, which of course you don't get paid for and, no, and nobody reads really, except the people who do the peer review at the beginning uh, for the most part. And so I was working on I was working on some research, um, particularly about like um, critical realism, like left wing realisms, like surrealism and uh, and so on, and versus like realisms that come from the far right. And I mentioned to some professors I had no intention of publishing it academically because I wanted people to actually read it. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, it, some people were surprised like don't you want to get tenure and like i can do the math i know i'm not going to get tenure <laughs> like there's no way there's like there's for every one of me there's 100 people that have a degree from harvard who can't get a tenure track job so why would i get hired um anyway um and i'm more interested in, in people actually reading and responding to ideas and politics and, and so on. And not all of them are going to be academics and have access to academic journals. In fact, most of them won't be, um, you know, and I think it's, you know, it's like, it's kind of an internalization um, amongst writers and artists and even academics of that thing that Mark Fisher talked about, about capitalist realism. We have to do it this way because we have to climb a ladder that we're never going to get to the top of rather than make things for the people we really care about. Um, and I think that I feel like, you know, I feel, I mean, and I don't know, I can't get into you, you, you know, your motivations in terms of your writing, but the way that the, the, like Tish was talking about some of the lines punching you in the gut, tell me that you're writing it in, in a similar kind of way. You know, um, like the final nine lines in Salt Earth really hit me and the opening of uh, Who Let Marcus Drown, If It Is the Water, I Cry Foul, and the conclusion of White Narratives, not one more penniless note on empathy. Um, I don't feel like, and I don't think there's anything wrong with like, you know, publishing work, you know, professionally, obviously, or showing artwork in a professional art gallery or whatever, but I feel like these lines, you know, while they're crafted so well and, you know, obviously can fit in, you know, that kind of professional publishing, I also feel like they move far beyond it, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. You know, it's funny that you mentioned these things because I'm, I'm resonating a lot. But, you know, 
one of one of the things I will say is that I'm nobody's establishment darling. You know, I don't wear that as a badge of honor per se, but I know that, you know, I don't write to um, secure prizes or, you know, positions. And, you know, I think I realized early on, you know, right soon after my um, uh, MFA degree in 2008, that that wasn't going to happen, you know? So, um, you know, I used to find it difficult to explain to my family that the title professor was largely fanfare, you know, that I was a poorly paid adjunct, temporary, disposable, and part of a transient class of workers, you know? Um, you know, so, yeah, I just want to say that I resonate fully with everything you just said. And, um, and I had a question too, you know, you talked about accessibility um, and how alternative publishing venues might further your cause for accessibility. But I was going to, I wanted to ask you in terms of poetry writing and poetry making, how do you balance that with the question of accessibility? Because poetry is such an, an interesting, it's, it, 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 it's its own beast, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, um, and some people might say it's even um, centers on inaccessibility. Um, the compression of language and the twerking of speech and things like that. I guess if I was if I was going to answer this, um, I would say that like just very basically, like I, I try to I try to keep things simple, and I I usually like um, I, because I I have such anxiety with my with my writing, and I'm always trying to like um, no, that's not right. No, I need to edit this in the moment. You know, I'm always changing things. I'm never satisfied with the way it is. So I just like free write and then what it is, it is. And when I free write, it tends to be, I don't know, less complicated. It tends to be, tends to be a little simpler, more accessible. I, I'm trying to, another thing that I keep in mind that I don't think I've ever really talked about is that I'm trying to write poetry sometimes like to, to people I know in my family that like um, aren't into poetry at all. So sometimes I'm trying to write things that are like, you know, I don't know. I, I just I try to keep things a little bit more on the on the simple side, I guess. Yeah, I think this is like an absolutely great question. And one of the things I think about is this uh, contradiction of uh, art um, and writing and capitalism. <laughs> that there tends to be for some things an ease of access to production. Um, you know, anybody can theoretically, you know, write a poem, but being um, initiated into the poetry world is a rarefied thing for the most part um with exceptions or ease of access to consumption everybody can go see a movie but to make a movie is actually prohibitively expensive for for for, for most uh people who are working class um or or and so on um and i, I think there's been important art movements that try to attack this problem um i two of the most popular most important popular uh, movements of cultural movements that try to tackle this in recent history uh, were hip hop and punk um, an ease of access to production um, in hip hop, although not an ease of, of mastery, also an ease of access to production in punk and, and, and in eradicating the idea of consumer um, versus producer and so on. But those things, of course, like all art and capitalism get reified and absorbed over time, um, in, 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 you know, to some degree. I think that it's also a question of 
if you're making art or um, writing poetry or literature or and so on, it's also a question of like audience. Um, not that we should like, you know, not that I'm saying like folks should uh, curtail what they're saying, but I think I always, when I'm writing, try to imagine an audience of other other working class people who care about similar things that I care about. It's like that saying, like the fingerprints of rich painters are meaningless, you know, um, to most of the people in my life, but the fingerprints of uh, you know, my friend who's a security guard at, at, at a uh, grocery store who got COVID and got laid off, his fingerprints mean a lot to me. And I don't know if that solves the problem or if the problem can be solved um, without a mass movement that at least threatens this system. Um, but that's how I try to sort of approach it. If, if Does that make any sense? Yes. Total sense, total sense. And I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I think I write in a similar fashion, um, but I think that, you know, um, Martha Collins's uh, review on the back of the book, one thing she really got right, is, I, mean, I think she might have done a lot right, but one thing she really got right is that it's a, it's a panoramic production that I'm um, at work on in the rest of us. And, I, and it's a panoramic production because I want it to be Ferris wheel like. I don't. I want it to be accessible. I want some. I want my family and people in my community and my immediate sphere to be able to touch and feel and resonate with something in that book. You know what I mean? Even though I might have whole polemics, right? Whole arguments underneath. Like I want them to be able to touch, feel, and get into the rest of us. Do you know? Um, I love how you describe it as a question of audience um, and trying to reach other working class people who care about the things you do. Thank you for saying that. And I think to, to build on that, I really like what you said, panoramic production, because one of the things we're just trying to play a modest role with at Locust Review is finding other working class artists and other artists who care about the exploited and oppressed and put those things in conversation with each other. Um, because of what our one of our editors, who's an artist uh, in uh, in India, Anupam Roy, describes, and this is of course a, a longstanding question for political artists, is the impossibility of representation. I, I understand what I understand from where I'm from, and so on. Um, Tish also, you also, Drew also, but we want to get as many people in communication as possible with what their with their self-expression, their political self-expression, um, to create a panorama that's a bunch of individual voices, but also sort of like a chorus. And that chorus is sometimes harmonious and sometimes not, um, but might get it something like something like a, a, a something like almost in like a Brechtian way, like. This is like who is in opposition to the way things are. Um, so, like, we're going to read uh, uh, later on in the episode a letter from a, a, a worker who works at a uh, uh, one of the national uh, 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 pharmacy drugstore chains about like how ridiculous it is working there. Right? I I haven't worked at a drugstore chain. I can write I can write something about being a dishwasher at Denny's, I've done that and being a janitor because I was a janitor for several years, but I don't know 
um, uh, what it's like to work at at a uh, at a drugstore, or also, and what they're doing now is they're putting a digital headsets on these people so people like at corporate headquarters can monitor every second of their behavior in real time in the stores so and talk to you so if you take yeah so if you take like a little break like just for a minute you know like after a douchebag customer yells at you for no fucking reason and you start trying to relax and it's clear to the managers that you're not doing anything. They can say, you need to go stock this now, you know, and they don't even have to be there. Yeah, that's, that's creepy. That's actually very creepy, you know, um, because there's a tinge of, of the sort of like um, attendant surveillance that we're all under 24 hours a day in that. And that's disgusting. Um, but also um, it's, it, that, that, goes with also itinerant, itinerant workers, you know, like, um, you know, because forever I drove for delivery platforms, you know, and, um, you know, and now Amazon, I believe it is, if you drive for them, of course, they provide the van, but there's all this equipment inside the van that monitors you, right? So one of the, one of the major complaints is that, you know, people can't even take proper pees and urinate you know you know they can't take proper breaks because they're too afraid of being deigned by this you know digital supervisor you know so yeah i I think it's i think it's quite interesting but then also i want to go back to what you said about you know the will Uh, i think you were talking about um well i would describe it as discordant will and there's nothing wrong with all of these voices and reality sloshing about together in a, inside of a poetic container. You know what I mean? I think that a discordant reality is real, right? That's real life. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that as well. Did you call that discordant will? Yes. I absolutely love that. Yes. I, I, can, I'm going to quote you if that's all right. That's fine. <laughs> yes. Thank you for listening to part one of Locust Radio. Part two is deep in hiding after allegedly committing acts which the government considers terrorism. To discover its secret location, go to patreon.com slash locustreview and subscribe for $5 a month or more. Locust Radio is hosted by Tish and Adam Turrell. It's produced by Alexander Billet and Drew Franzblau. That's me. Thanks again for listening, and please stay tuned for more Locust Radio.